What's up? Welcome back to Nostalgia. Dave here with another pod. What's going on in pop culture right now? Mega pod this week. A ton of big stuff to get to. On the music front, Jungkook's debut album, Golden, the last BTS member to release a solo album. A lot to get into it. That one, Kevin Abstract's fourth solo album, Blanket, as well. On the TV front, Gen V, season one on Amazon Prime, the boys spinoff series. On the movie front, a uh, bunch of heavy hitters here. You got Nyad, the biopic film starring at Benning on Netflix. The Holdovers from Alexander Payne, uh, definitely a Best Picture contender. And also Priscilla, the Priscilla Presley biopic film, drama film, starring Kaylee Spaney and Jacob Elordi from Sofia Coppola. And oh yeah, 2024 Grammy nomination predictions because the Grammy nominations are coming out soon. A lot to handle. So let's get into it. Make sure you see the links below, linktree.com slash nostalgiapod, youtube.com slash nostalgiapod. Get the pod any way you can. Throw me five stars on Spotify if you can. Leave a comment. Let me know how you're feeling. And let's get into it. What's up? Welcome back to Nostalgia. Dave here with a review of Gen V Season 1 on Amazon Prime Video. The Boys spinoff series concluded its first season. And I have to say, I was quite satisfied with Gen V. I was pretty optimistic going in. Just thought the concept of a Vought superhero school set in the Boys universe made perfect sense as a spinoff. And more than anything else, the world of the Boys, as it's been realized by Amazon, is a really fun place to be with. Of course, it's a series that's dark and graphic and crass and very violent, of course, but also has uh, I think poignant, if, if obvious, if overt, social commentary, political satire. It's uh, definitely one of the more intriguing superhero things we have right now in the world of never-ending superhero content, right? And yeah, the thing, my only beef with Gen V through its first season, and it has been renewed for season two, not too big of a surprise, but pretty cool that we know that now we'll have the boys back for season four next year and Gen V back for season two in 2025. Really happy to keep keep the ball rolling here. It's, it's a good time. My only real beef with Gen V season one is we kind of very quickly moved beyond the central concept and conceit of Gen V. We don't, you know, I thought there was just a lot of meat on the bone for superheroes at college. And we kind of quickly leave all that behind as there's a lot of plot momentum plot movement with season one and unsurprisingly Vought is up to no good and Godolkin University God you where the Gen V students are attending our, our central setting for the series unsurprisingly there's bad things going on there and our lead protagonists uh, quickly get involved with that and uncovering things and things really come to a head and Basically, the status quo is completely flipped by the end of season one, and we know that season two will be starting in a very different place. Not that that's un unexpected per se. I just wish it took us a little longer to get there personally, because I just think there was a lot of fun potential for more stuff. You know, the hijinks of college kids fucking and killing each other and binge drinking and all of that stuff. It's very slight on this series, and I just would have liked to see more of that. I just think that's very entertaining stuff and in the world of the boys it would have been right at home alas we didn't really get that and that, that's kind of my one big note here but ultimately i think you have a really compelling cast of characters you know jazz sinclair as marie uh really carries it of course she's i think really made an impression as a character uh, in the boys world now uh marie notably taking a blast uh, to the face, to the chest, you know, straight up from Homelander in the finale uh, in Living to Tell the Tale as we see at the very end. No small feat. Also just her ability to basically bloodbend. Uh, very intriguing visual uh, for the series and just, I think, compelling powers. You know, this Gen V presented thought concept of, I think, self-harm at times and, and dealing with grief i don't know if it totally handled that all that well but 
nonetheless, I think the Marie character was definitely a success. And then the other characters, you know, in support, I think the best character of the bunch has to be uh, Emma, played by uh, Lizzie Broadway. Uh, again, her ability to purge to make herself small and eat to make herself big. Again, a bit on the nose with the commentary, but I think the performance was good. I really liked the character. Um, you know, Chance Perdomo as Andre and uh, Maddie Phillips as Kate. Pretty solid. I like them in the bunch, especially what happened at the end uh, with Kate, you know, and the revelations about what was what she was up to with her telepath and mind control abilities. That was fun for the plot. Um, and then, you know, Jordan being the uh, gender shifter character played by Derek La and London Thor. Really like that. I think there's a lot more potential for that character for sure. You know, I think on one hand, you get some of the some familiar beats with Gen V. Like we see Victoria Newman show up in kind of a cameo role, one episode role, and the fate of the Vought, uh, sorry, the, the, the God You Doctor when he's alone in a parking garage with Victoria Newman, the secret soup, who we already know has powers. You kind of saw that one coming, right? That's that 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 wasn't anything new. Um, I really like the episode with uh, Tech Knight, the uh, true crime TV host, who was basically a front to cover up stuff and meld public opinion. That was a really compelling episode. Of course, at the end with the finale, you know, Homelander cameo and then a Butcher cameo post credits. Um, really effective, especially because that's where you get the the status quo flip. You know, God, he was basically done after this massacre and Homelander has blamed our lead protagonists who were on the right side of things, uh, really keeping the continuing uh, feeling of how you how, how we were with the boys season three, right, where Homelander is basically dictating public opinion and, and then, you know, and the political satire of it all. We know who Homelander represents. We know what his media network represents, etc., that's all pretty exciting because the this, this series is so feels so integrated with the boys. But again, I wish we could have spent more time getting to this point. Uh, the stuff with the woods, you know, as kind of the central conflict, you know, I thought it was it w- it was interesting. Uh, I guess once we got there, my only note was that Golden Boy's brother uh, Sam, not the most fun presence to be with, and obviously the flip at the end where he becomes an antagonist. I don't know, like I wasn't the biggest fan of spending so much time with him, but he was kind of our connection to the plot movement with Gen V. It's fine. I like Patrick Schwarzenegger as Golden Boy, you know, in, in the scenes we do have with him. Obviously, uh, he does not long for the show. And yeah, ultimately, it's just fun to be with the, the Gen V world, and I'm very excited to see The Boys Season 4. I'll be curious what connection to Gen V we get in The Boys Season 4. I suspect we'll see something, uh, but probably won't be too heavy of an involvement. But to have more characters we've come to know and get invested in in this world, very fun. It's basically just an expansion of the ensemble. And I'm sure we're going to lose some of these characters along the way. That much is pretty obvious. But yeah, shout out Gen V. Uh, successful first season. Happy it's continuing. But let me know how you feel about Gen V season one. Did you get hung up on the rapid plot movement and leaving behind the central concept the way I did? Did you not mind it? And for more TV reviews, subscribe, and I'll see you next time. What's up? Welcome back to Nostalgia. Dave here with a review of Nyad, the new sports biographical drama film about Diana Nyad, the long-distance swimmer, out now on Netflix, starring Annette Benning as Diana Nyad and Jodie Foster as her friend and coach, Bonnie Stoll. This film is directed by Elizabeth Chai Fasarheli and Jimmy Chin who both were the co-directors famously of Free Solo, the documentary, but this is the two of them together on a feature. And yeah, this film premiered back at Telluride earlier this year and is out now on Netflix after a small token theatrical release per Netflix standards. And yeah, I thought this was solid film, compulsively watchable, familiar beats, doesn't really rise above the kind of formula but the subject matter the story is entertaining is compelling this is the latest effort from Annette Benning, you know later in life attempting I think to find a Oscar worthy role 
look and just kind of think back on her, you know, last handful of movies, right? 20th Century Women, Film Stars Don't Die in Liverpool, The Report, Nyad. She keeps going for awards you fair, fair. She's not quite finding like the the right film, I think. I think Nyad it's a it's it's definitely a good attempt, but this film I think just doesn't quite rise up to like be like that special of a movie in terms of like the upper echelon of like awards contenders. And thus as a result, I'm not expecting Annette Benning to sneak in to Best Actress. But it's really no no shot against her. I think she's good in the film because this film to its credit does a good job of portraying Diana Nyad's prickly nature, the fact that she was just kind of an asshole, self-described at that, and, you know, narcissist, self-absorbed person, all that. The movie is about that. So you have to kind of let your hair down, I think, to, to, to act as a character like that, to someone who's unlikable, you know? Jodie Foster... I think is probably the big takeaway from the movie. She's just kind of awesome as Bonnie Stoll, who is Nyad's longtime friend. They play off each other really well, despite the fact that they have different personalities and Diana's so demanding. I also really like Reese Ifans as John Bartlett, the uh, navigator they have on the ship, because this film, of course, is about Diana Nyad's attempt as a marathon swimmer to swim from Cuba to Key West, Florida, a swim of 110 miles swim that had not been uh done before un unaided without um any assist assisting equipment and Nyad had you know become famous for doing various distance swims and because she has such a big personality had become pretty famous and successful in her career but in 1978 at age 28 she had failed to do this swim and now in 2013 at age 64 she finds the inspiration to attempt to do this again and that's basically what this film is about and we see multiple attempts attempts felled by uh bad weather storms jellyfish stings uh just you know physical failure etc and it quickly becomes i think clear that like the movie is gonna have downs and downs and ups and downs and then She'll eventually succeed at the end. Like, it's not much of a spoiler, really. You see it coming the whole time. But she realizes that she needs to be more grateful to her team because she can't do without her team, even the fact that she's so demanding and commanding of the people that help her along the way. Um, I don't think there's a whole lot of subtext after that. You know, again, pretty watchable, well done. It. Uh, I think if one, one thing that didn't quite work for me is they try and present, like, Diane and I adds frame of mind as she's doing these swimming uh these long distance swims she of course would say that she would count to herself she would sing whole songs in her mind you know just to keep her sanity and keep herself focused as she's doing uh you know swimming for hours on end you know two days in a row basically the like kind of like fantastical stuff of like watching her be under the sea and imagining things that doesn't really come across that well and i think like that's kind of the missing piece of this movie maybe being bigger than what it currently is. And I just don't think the filmmakers really had the right structure to kind of communicate that. Also, one thing, you know, in reading more about the story is it'd be interesting if the film had, I did a bit of a postscript, post the success of the swim and obviously the, all the acclaim and fame that followed with it. Uh, again, making the swim happen at age 64, or I think it was age 65, whenever, however, whenever she got it done. Uh, this this swim has been doubted by the distance swimming community. And Diana Nia is a polarizing figure due to her personality and the way she moves and does about things. It'd be interesting to see that in the movie because the movie's not afraid to show Diana Nia's flaws. It's hardly a hagiography. But that, that, that would, I think, gone hand in hand with the movie. It'd be kind of interesting. You know, kind of how, like, Captain Phillips uh, post... Uh, or, sorry, not Captain Phillips, uh, Sully... Sullenberger, you know, the Tom Hanks movie kind of going to court after successfully saving people's lives with the river landing of the plane, right? I don't know. Different kind of structure, different kind of movie. Just kind of an interesting thought that, like, that's kind of left on the cutting room floor with this movie. But it is definitely a piece of the story. But alas, it's Nyad. I don't think it's an Oscar contender for really anyone involved. Uh, Jodie Foster probably has the best chance of anyone as a supporting actor, actress. But yeah, solid watch 
for a you know solid story. Definitely a story worth uh, dramatizing in film. But yeah, that's not out now on Netflix. I think Netflix is going to have some bigger awards contenders than this and we'll be talking about those as they come out but let me know how'd you feel about naiad and for more movie reviews subscribe and i'll see you next time what's up welcome back to nostalgia dave here with a review of priscilla the new drama film from sofia coppola starring kaylee spaney as priscilla presley and jacob lordy as elvis presley this movie is coming at a fascinating time of course only a year and change removed from the massive hit from baz Luhrmann. Elvis, a more traditional musical biopic about Elvis, starring, of course, Austin Butler in the title role, a film that went on to be nominated for Best Picture. Austin Butler received many plaudits for Best Actor. To me, actually, was the best pick of the bunch, even though he did not actually win. And yeah, now we get Priscilla from Sofia Coppola, one of our greatest filmmakers. And it's very interesting to compare and contrast these movies and yeah, I, I just think it's fascinating when you get something like this. You know, Elvis, 2022, that is a traditional musical biopic telling the Elvis story kind of start to finish. And that is a long movie that has a lot of entertaining moments and big set pieces, but also a lot of bloat and has a lot of, lot of issues, even if I find it overall quite entertaining. And Priscilla, as the name might suggest, is not the Elvis story. This is the story of Priscilla Presley's relationship with Elvis, how that began, how that went, how that ended. Of course, a very famous story, just like the Elvis story itself. Priscilla Presley herself, very uh, small part of the Elvis biopic from last year. So very much a companion piece, even if the filmmaking styles between a maximalist like Baz Luhrmann and someone very interested in interiority like Sofia Coppola, obviously they're very different. But Priscilla, I liked the movie. I thought it was quite effective. And yeah, I think it's... um really good use of, of Sophia's talents. You know, this is uh, very much in line with some of her interests as a filmmaker. There's been a lot of obvious comparisons between Priscilla and the Sophia uh, opus, Marie Antoinette, of course, you know, 20 years ago. And, you know, Priscilla, the film, based off of Priscilla Presley's uh, memoir, Elvis and Me, uh, Priscilla Presley was a producer on the film, released by A24 following a uh, Venice uh, premiere earlier this year and yeah i think um it has like so many sofia coppola touchstones you know, there's a lot of close-ups spent a lot of time indoors with this i think it's really effective for the story but what's i think most important with, with a movie like this which is much more about the indoor and the private uh lives between these two characters which whereas the elvis movie was kind of the opposite Priscilla needs to work by, I think, effectively communicating Priscilla Presley's infatuation with Elvis, which may, did not make her unique at all. Of course, Elvis Presley, the number one heartthrob and cultural force of his time. And then it had to make the relationship feel like, I think, I think real, you know. And you have Kaylee Spaney, who's someone who it's been successful on TV. I was a big fan of her in Devs, but this is definitely a huge role for her, right? And Spaney, to her credit, really effectively plays, both in terms of her mannerisms and also, you know, I think effective, you know, hair and makeup and costume design. She effectively plays age 14 to wherever, however old she was when it ended, you know, her 20s, uh, late 20s. You know, like she, she gives you a range uh, in terms of her performance, but also really effectively portrays the um, love and uh, in in obsession with a character like Elvis and Jacob Elordi has a really tall task, of course, following a perform a portrayal of Elvis that was literally Oscar nominated in Austin Butler. Elordi has to effectively communicate that heartthrob status, and because Jacob Elordi is so tall, six foot five, taller than the real life Elvis, in fact. You know, El Lordy, a traditional, like, you know, hunky man. Like, he really works it. He is a really effective Elvis. And again, it's really interesting to think about these two performances, where I love the Austin Butler performance, but in a sense, I think the Lordy performance is almost even better. You know, he's not the lead of the movie, but he, I think, really has a an accent that, man, it's different than the Butler accent, but man, it, again, it almost feels more authentic. Like, it's... It, it, it's real, and I think there's just 
there's just a richness to this Alordi performance where he doesn't even have to say a lot of lines, but like you, you get it. And Priscilla also has a film, I think had to portray this with a bit of a modern lens. Of course, Priscilla Presley was age 14 when she started seeing Elvis Presley age 24. This was at best a grooming situation at worst, something even more illegal. And the issues with that and the role of Priscilla Presley's parents in letting something like this happen, uh, the culpability of many people, uh, enablers uh, within the Elvis orbit, etc. The movie does not shy away from that. And those warts are open for you to think about. And I certainly did as I was watching the movie. In a sense, it's off-putting. And Elvis Presley does not come off especially great in this movie. Whereas the Elvis biopic... Uh, made you feel really good and ultimately acknowledge the tragedy of Elvis as a figure. Elvis is portrayed as much more of a goon in Priscilla, but also he he needed to be. That's what this movie needed to be about, how Priscilla was a prop, was a doll, not allowed to really be a person. She just had to be a servant of Elvis when he needed her, even as he cheated on her uh, consistently with famous people when he was working in L.A., you know. Then the movie really achieves all these key key goals. Now, and the only issue that you can have with Priscilla to me is I think, don't think there's a lot of subtext to it. I think it's just kind of there, you know, and it's a effective snapshot of this romance featuring an incredibly famous person giving you two good performances. The script, though, I don't think it has, like, any extra meat there. Maybe you don't need that. You know, just kind of spending time with this relationship with two great performances. I think that's fine. That's cool. And it's probably good that the movie doesn't have like a preachy element to it, you know, 2023 lens per se. It doesn't hide from the facts about this situation. It just kind of presents them as they were, and you're allowed to make your own judgments, as I think most people would. And yeah, I think it's a both effective movie, even if perhaps it's um, not as deep as perhaps you would expect it to be. It's deeper, of course, than the Elvis biopic from last year from Baz, but that was kind of a given going in. Um, yeah, I mean, just kind of stuff like how it was done. Like, I like the Graceland set. That was all pretty effective. Like how the Memphis Mafia, uh, you know, the hangers on, the entourage of Elvis, that was portrayed all pretty effectively, even if those guys, they're not, they're not famous actors. They're just kind of in the background. I only have a few lines for the most part, but they play off of Lordy's Elvis quite well. That's all really effective. The movie does a really good job of not uh, hiding from the fact that Elvis was on uppers and downers constantly and exposed them to Priscilla very early in their courtship, uh, crazily enough. Again, doesn't hide the fact that Priscilla Presley was allowed to fly from where she was living in Germany with her military father and family. She was allowed to fly on her own to Graceland in Memphis, Tennessee with an older man and his whole family. It's an incredibly perplexing situation that would never fly today. And the movie presents that to you. Like, not to get hung up on that, but I think it just, it does a good job of telling you how it was in that regard. And yeah, as things start to go south, I think that's where Spaining gets to really shine. And the, the, the script does things in subtle ways, such as uh, Priscilla starting to change her appearance and not... Uh, be as obedient to Elvis's wishes. The movie communicates the passage of time, primarily through uh, the age of their young child, once the pregnancy happens, as soon as they get married, but also through, of course, Elvis's physical transformation as life started to take its toll on him, as we all know. And, yeah, I think it's just an effective film. And is it, you know, as it is, it's not as, it's not as deep as Lost in Translation, but, like, I don't think we kind of expected that going in. But again, a really compelling companion piece uh, compared to Elvis from last year, which is, again, a movie I enjoyed despite its flaws. I enjoy Priscilla as well. I think it's fascinating to think about these things. And I'd be very curious where people land on the Butler versus a Lordy performance. Again, a Lordy, sorry, a Butler gets to be much more showy in Elvis as that movie goes, whereas Priscilla is not a showy film, and Elvis' role in Priscilla is not showy at all, and it's just actually a supporting role as well. You know, I think the accent, despite the fact that Butler's accent became a meme, 
pretty funny. I think it was effective in the film, but I think the Lordies comes across as quite natural, and the I think the lack of over the topness and campiness to anything about this film really fits the vibe and script that you have with Priscilla. So yeah, I like Priscilla. Do I think this is going to be a Best Picture nominee the way Elvis was? No, it's not as broadly appealing and as, um, you know, four quadrants the way Baz Luhrmann's Elvis was. I think that's pretty clear. Um, I, I really don't see nominations for anyone either, even if I think people are worthy for sure. Uh, Sophia, not going to be recognized, I don't think. You know, maybe an adaptive screenplay nomination could be in the, mil- the, the realm, but frankly, I don't think it's the like a dynamite script per se, so I don't really see it. But I think that's okay. It's an effective film, does its job, and it's coming out a great time, and I think makes for a lot of good discussion in terms of comparing these two films. But let me know, how did you feel about Priscilla? How did you feel about it in comparison to Elvis from last year? How do you feel about Lordy's performance in comparison to Austin Butler's, etc.? Let me know. And for more movie reviews, subscribe, and I'll see you next time. What's up? Welcome back to Nostalgia. Dave here with a review of The Holdovers, the new comedy-drama film from Alexander Payne, starring Paul Giamatti. Divine Joy Randolph and Dominic Sessa. This film, definitely an Oscar contender, Best Picture nominee. I think it's pretty likely some acting nominees potentially to come as well. Really like the movie. I think it's really effective, uh, really funny, but also really touching drama. Three great acting performances. Yeah, a lot to get into with this. Comeback for Alexander Payne. You know, his last film, Downsizing. Back in 2017, it's been a minute, and Downsizing also, certainly a polarizing film, you know, kind of stopping the momentum he had as a pretty consistent, you know, Oscar darling. Uh, Downsizing, that's a movie that definitely liked the beginning of it, didn't really like the end per se, kind of like, I think like half of it, I guess you could say. The Holdovers premiered back at Telluride earlier this year, and is now in limited release from Focus Features and expanding from there. Actually, though, it sold at Toronto last year without playing for $30 million, the high mark in the history of the Toronto International Film Festival, sold the focus. And not that this movie's going to be a box office hit per se, but I think it's going to be a very popular movie on the awards trail, just because this, I think, has so many of the hallmarks that you want from, you know, an awards movie. It has really great comedy. I think the script, which is not from Payne, the script is from David Hemmingston. The script is very, I think, sharp, and the actors really play off it well. So there is, I think, great humor, and it's, sometimes it's physical comedy, sometimes it's just mannerisms or side eyes or silences. This movie was getting laughs consistently as I was watching it, and despite the fact that there's uh, consistent laughter and, and humor in, in the holdovers, the drama is real. And that combination is rare, as I think we all know, to get get both. You know, to get real feeling and investment in the drama of your characters, but also still have a great time along the way. Uh, it's just a really good time. Also, I think the setting of the movie is, is pretty ripe for just a, a fun movie. It's set in 1970 at a fictional New England uh, all-boys boarding school called Barton. And... Paul Giamatti is playing Paul Hunnam. He is a professor, very curmudgeon particular, kind of doesn't read the room, and is very stuck-in-his-ways kind of professor. And Giamatti just eats this role up, really imbuing himself in it, and uh, I think he's really great. Uh, Divine Joy Randolph plays Mary Lamb, and Mary is a cafeteria worker, the manager of the kitchen at Barton, but she is not just that. She also had a son who previously attended Barton, and her son has recently passed away in the Vietnam War, and she is a mother in mourning. And then our last, you know, core character here is Angus Tully, played by Dominic Sessa in his first feature film role. And Angus was expecting, over Christmas break, to go to St. Kitts with his mom and stepfather, but he surprisingly last minute gets left behind at school can't come home and thus he is one of the holdovers there's i believe uh, five kids five boys who are uh, stuck at barton for the holidays and uh, giamatti's character uh, uh, 
NGMI's character Hunnam is the one in charge of supervising them this holiday season. And great premise, and really smartly as well, because obviously being at a boarding school in the 70s is just ripe for tons of stuff, and you would have thought that this movie could have, I think, just solely been like these kids stuck over Christmas break with this teacher they all loathe, this teacher who's so hard on them, who takes pleasure in failing his students when they don't uh, meet expectations, having the kids fight back against him at this you know, austere boarding school. That would have been a great movie as well. That's not what this movie is, because at the end of Act 1, of course, spoilers for the holdovers, at the end of Act 1, all the other boys get whisked away by one of the boys' fathers via helicopter. They get to go and spend time with the other guy's family and thus don't have to hold over. So thus, Angus is the only kid left. And that's where the movie just really takes off. And I think from there, you just get, have the performances really shine, because it's not a movie with a ton of plot. You know, uh, Dominic Sessa, to his credit, really kind of nervy, rangy, neurotic kid, uh, who was actually discovered by Payne and crew at one of the... uh, uh, boarding schools that they shot part of this movie at. You know, so again, it's his first role. He he's got it. He, I think, does a really good job of playing a kid who clearly has a lot on his mind in terms of his family life, and things are revealed about his family and his parents specifically as the movie goes on. But his you know open conflict and just verbal sparring with Giamatti is really good. Again, it takes a lot. Just uh, hang with someone like Giamatti, right? He's a guy who can be very boisterous. And Giamatti, in this case, playing a character who has issues uh, in social circumstances. And he's so willing almost to alienate himself from others, you know, just start speaking Greek and Latin and making references to ancient history, his subject that he teaches in normal conversation, just in normal social situations. He's not someone who talks to women all that much, things like that. Uh, Angus and, and Hunnam, they just bounce off each other, and it's really awesome. And, but but yet, despite the fact that we have this revelation of a new performer in Dominic Sessa, and you have Giamatti being great, like he almost always is, the biggest winner of the holdovers is not Giamatti, it is not Sessa, it's not Alexander Payne, it's Divine Joy Randolph, who I've seen in a lot of things at this point. She's been great uh, all the time. You know, I thought she was really good on Idol earlier this year, one of the best parts about that very flawed HBO series that I've reviewed earlier this year. You know, like Darren Dolomite is my name. Seen her a lot of stuff. She's been good for a while, usually in supporting roles. Supporting role once again for her. But at this time around as Mary, she just kind of blows everyone away. You know, playing a grieving mother and the movie positioning the Mary character as a fully developed person. And, you know, the, the Christmas party scene where they all go off campus and she's playing a specific record that reminds her of her son. It was music that her son liked. Uh, how she interacts with Naheem Garcia's character, who's like the school handyman, the only other black character in the in the movie. Um, she just has like so much grace. Amazing humor as well, the way she plays off Giamatti. Um, she gets some of the biggest laughs. She's awesome. But I, I just really liked the, the Mary character. Like, very sad as a straight up grieving person kind of using alcohol to dull the pain type of thing keeping to herself for the most part and as we start to peel the onion on all three of these characters you really realize that randolph as mary is really kind of rising to the top out of all of it and as you're thinking about the movie and think about like barton right it's this new england boarding school with all these white kids and occasionally an Asian kid, occasionally a black kid, but it's primarily just a bunch of rich white kids, you know, senators' sons and people with money, right? And yet, uh, the movie, I think, very smartly, abjectly, even if it doesn't focus on this, explains how things are in terms of class, right? Mary's son wasn't going to college post-Barton. She, so he did not get a deferment. Thus, he got sent off to Vietnam and he died poor kids they're the cannon fodder the rich kids they get to go to college um it's stark but really hits you you know and the fact that the school community at least you know our core creators here are embracing mary but the obvious kind of inequality to what it was like 
in the 1970s when kids, young boys were being drafted and sent off to Vietnam. Even though it's not a movie about Vietnam, I think the way it handles all that is pretty, pretty impressive. Um, I think the movie gets really awesome when our three characters take a trip to Boston. It's really cool. Obviously, I live in Boston. It's really cool to see sites I recognize in Boston. I've always enjoyed seeing that. The movie was shot all throughout New England. And I think the Boston stuff's really fun. Stuff at the bar before that's really fun. The house party they go to. A lot of really nice scenes. And then, again, you just kind of learn more about the characters and the relationship goes from animosity to kind of almost kindred spirits, you know, kind of accepting each other for who they are and seeing a bit of themselves in the other person in terms of how they handle their pain and what they're going through. I just think there's a lot of a lot, a lot of depth to the movie. And again, it's funny all the time. So it's it's awesome to be with, even though there's a lot to think about and some some really strong raw emotion from Sessa and especially from Randolph. So the holdover is awesome. I think it's definitely going to get Best Picture nominated. Um, I would I wouldn't say it's favorite to win, especially not this time. But I think it's going to get nominated for sure. Um, it's an original screenplay. I think that's in the cards for sure. Very worthy, honestly, uh, from Hengston. Uh, it's an awesome script, and yeah, I, I'd, I'd definitely be rooting for the movie to do well. I hope people do see it as the movie expands. But uh, it's pretty 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 great movie. Really good time. And yeah, shout out to Holdovers. Awesome comeback for Alexander Payne. Not that he there was any worry about Alexander Payne following a polarizing film. People have polarizing films in their career. It's, it's no problem. But what what a comeback. You know, this is a movie year with tons of big directors, right? And we assume Best Picture is going to be dominated by big directors such as Martin Scorsese and Christopher Nolan. Bowser Payne, he's in the mix too. Good for him. And uh, yeah, I think Paul Giamatti, who has been Oscar nominated once, but never won, wouldn't be shocked to see him get nominated. Uh, I think Divine Joy Randolph, though, is probably the number one pick out of all of this and probably the closest to a win for an acting nomination. And Sessa probably deserves a breakthrough uh, award nomination from some of the other awards bodies because it's, it's definitely a uh, Revelation-type debut performance. So yeah, shout out the Holdovers. Let me know how you feel about the Holdovers. Are you as happy with it as I am? And for more movie reviews and Oscar talk when the time comes, subscribe, and I'll see you next time. What's up? Welcome back to Nostalgia. Dave here with a review of Kevin Abstract's fourth solo album, Blanket. Yes, Kevin Abstract back with new solo material just a year after the final Brockhampton albums came out, The Family and TM. I, of course, have covered Brockhampton extensively over the years. Did a Brockhampton album ranking episode. Check the link below for that. Just last week, talked about Amir Van and Merlin's surprise uh, collab, Slime and the Ice Machine. Brockhampton guy. Brockhampton, of course, broke up last year. Talked about that at length. Again, check the links below. Kevin, though, this ostensible uh, frontman of Brockhampton when the group is together, also the most established soloist uh, throughout this whole time, is back with new music. And, of course, I think any Brockhampton fan would be patiently awaiting new music from Kevin, who has been one of the pillars of the group, as you'd expect. And I think many people's favorite member or one of their favorite members. He is a really talented guy. I primarily have loved him for his rapping ability as one of the rappers in Brockhampton. But he has also proven he can do other sounds, just as Brockhampton as a group proved that as well. Coming into this album, Blanket, it was led on by Kevin that this is not a rap album. To me, a bit disappointing to learn. You know, just because I think the best moments of Brockhampton often featured Kevin rapping. Now, Blanket is in fact a rock venture, rock album. It, you know, Kevin's take on one, anyway. Very, I think, unexpected to me, uh, at least not what I was feeling. I don't know. Hard to say, because like, on one hand, the most popular Brockhampton songs in terms of streaming, uh, Bleach, Ginger, not actually like hard rap records, you know? That's always kind of been a bit of a frustration for me, because I thought Brockhampton was at their best when they rapped, and that included Kevin's ability. His uh, last solo album, Arizona Baby, the best moments of that to me, uh, songs like Big Wheels, any songs like Peach, like featured Kevin rapping. So I'm coming in with an open mind, and of course coming in as a fan, fan of the artist, but 
definitely not something I was really looking for from him. And, you know, I think it's a very interesting record, and by no means is it, like, completely off-putting to me or anything like that. Features uh, co-production throughout from Ramil uh, Hanani, of course, you know, one of the members of Brockhampton. Interesting to see that collab, you know, post-breakup, released on RCA Records, just like all the Brockhampton albums were once I signed that deal. Kevin still seems to be under the RCA umbrella as a soloist, even though uh, Merlin and Kevin uh, and Amir were not as of last week. And yeah, I think it's interesting. There's some moments for me that I definitely liked, but overall, it's just, you know, as I was feeling going in, just really not what I was looking for. Um, but yeah, like kind of just going in, I think at times, my some of my issues with this is I feel like the vocal mix just feels a bit off. Like Kevin is a bit like unintelligible. Like it's hard to know what he's going on about. And sometimes the the production is almost like too distorted or just kind of too much for me. So very much an up and down record. You know, just kind of going through the track list here, right off the bat with track one, when the rope posts to break, you can clearly, clearly tell that this is not Kevin's natural voice. The vocals are, you know, quite pitched up. You have this guitar tempo, uh, lyrics about hanging, you know, getting a bit heavy. Um, you know, the track two, Blanket, the first song we heard of this, that's like the ostensible single. To me, it's really a nothing song. There's not a lot to this. Just, to me, it's just not interesting. Um, running Out, I thought Kevin's vocals sounded pretty cool on that. Uh, the Grays, really up-tempo, like the drum sound on that. Voyager, probably the biggest example of the bad vocal mix at times. Like, Kevin just doesn't sound good on this one. And then kind of out of nowhere, you have Madonna, which is this amazing breath of fresh air, featuring very lively vocals, an upbeat uh, production that really matches those vocals from Kevin. Honestly, a really sticky chorus. To me, this is easily the best song on Blanket. Really catchy. This is one that's fun to revisit. You know, and still feels like it's in sync with the rest of the album, which again I think speaks to Ramil and Kevin's talent. That it's a pretty cohesive record, for the most part. I'm not really vibing with it, but like it, 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 you can feel a vision to this album. And Madonna really, I think, just kind of crests up as a song. You can take away out of this, but it doesn't feel out of place at all within the context of the album. That's always awesome. Uh, what should I do? I think that one's pretty fun vocally from Kevin, like the drums. Mr. Edwards, basically an interlude song. It's just distortion and kind of like static over these drums. Uh, just kind of noise to me. But again, just just an interlude, nothing too bad. Uh, Scream, probably the best singing from Kevin. Kevin's not a bad singer per se, not a great one. But that one actually kind of fit the vibe with him doing something a bit different. Um, real to me, I thought the vocals were very catchy from Kevin once again. Like the uh, fast guitar tempo. And also, I think it's probably the most noticeable autotune. Clearly, stuff's been done to Kevin's vocals throughout the track list, but this one felt like probably, or sounded much more like traditional autotune on this one. And yeah, like I think it kind of fades out from there. Uh, brief runtime, you know, 13 songs, 38 minutes. Kevin Abstract, to his credit, really hard to pin down. You know, he's obviously hard to know where he's at with, on so with his activity on social media. But also musically, which again is the most important thing about this. This is a guy who tries stuff. And he did that when he's part of Brockhampton. He's done it as a soloist to this point. And that continues with Blanket. So even if this is not anywhere close to my favorite material from Kevin, I'm still a fan. I'm still very interested in what he's doing. Because at least he's going to uh, keep you guessing and sometimes give you something really special. I mean, again, to his credit, I think the song with Madonna is really awesome. So it's always going to be in there from him. But yeah, not, not my favorite from Kevin, but let me know, how did you feel about Blanket? Was this something you were interested in? Were you help hoping for a genre switch up like we got from Kevin on Blanket? And for more music reviews, subscribe, and I'll see you next time. What's up, what my nostalgia? Dave here with a review of Jungkook's solo debut album, Golden. He has Jungkook, of course, the youngest member of BTS, and the last member to unveil a debut solo album, of course, in the last year all the BTS members in the wake of BTS temporary hiatus have been giving us solo material, many of them for the very first time. And Joan Cook, I think, has been one to warrant a lot of attention and hype for what his solo music would entail, primarily because of really just his immense popularity. I think he is kind of unquestionably the most popular individual in BTS. Of course, they're all quite popular, as we know. It became pretty clear that there was a lot of commercial viability to 
Jungkook as a soloist, look no further than his feature on Charlie Puth's song Left Right last year, which really exploded as a song, even though I don't even think it's that great of a song, to be honest. You know, coming into this golden album, we saw this uh, manifest tenfold with the release of Seven. Uh, The song Seven, featuring Lotto, famously sampling Saturday Love by Alexander O'Neill and Shirelle, a really cool sample, and also, I think, helping shine light on a really cool song as well that's uh, by no means mainstream. But Seven, which has both incredibly catchy hooks and lyrics in general, and also very lust-filled, explicit lyrics, not something we're used to from the BTS songs normally, Seven has gone on to become the fastest song to reach 1 billion streams on Spotify. Speaking, once again, to Jungkook's commercial viability and immense popularity. That record was only just uh, reset earlier this year by Miley Cyrus's massive hit, Flowers. But doubt the BTS army at your own peril. Jungkook has reset the mark. So coming in with all this anticipation and clearly a proof of concept that this guy is a hit maker... You know, I think a lot of expectations were laid on Golden. And I have to say, there's things to like about this, but I think Jungkook doesn't really have much of a musical identity established yet. You know, notably, he didn't do any co-writing or co-producing on this record. There's a lot of writers here, a lot of big-name writers here. I think for me, the biggest takeaway with Golden and Jungkook as a soloist thus far is that he is, I think, without a doubt, the most integrated k-pop star into just the western music industry from a mainstream sense like jungkook was featured on the kid Leroy comeback single that just came out jungkook has an album you know with co-writes from ed sheeran and sean mendez and co-producing from people like blood pop and john bellion we're talking a-list songwriters a-list stars a-list producers and Jungkook, and making music almost exclusively in English as well. So we just haven't really seen this before. And of course, you're seeing the success, again, with Seven becoming such a massive hit this year, one of the biggest hits of 2023, to be honest. To me, that's the takeaway with Golden, is that Jungkook is just part of the game now. And, you know, he's the youngest member of BTS, only 26. In theory, he has more time before he would be required to do the military service with South Korea. But it sounds like he's going to do it soon at the end of the year, uh, just so that all the BTS boys can be have that in the past, you know, at the same time. But man, it feels like the momentum for the guy is really quick as a soloist, and maybe when the group reunites, his real inroads that he has made as an artist will somehow propel BTS even further, which seems like a crazy thing to say, because how could BTS get any bigger? But yeah, something to think about. So in terms of the music, you know, just kind of get into it here. It's a short record, really 10 songs, uh, 30 minutes. You know, you have this clean version of Seven once again. And again, like, just to reiterate, if you haven't heard Seven for some reason, he's literally talking about fucking you seven days a week and, like, saying as such. Like, it's, it's, it's really funny to hear, like, the youngest guy in the boy band be the one to give you the most explicit lyrics once he bursts out of his shell and does some solo work. Pretty funny. Uh, but yeah, going into it, you have the second single, 3D featuring Jack Harlow. Kind of funny, kind of kind of fun lyrically, uh, really reminiscent of, I guess, like, you know, Timbaland, Justin Timberlake, like 2000s era pop, I suppose. Um, again, just kind of reiterating that Jungkook is a horny motherfucker, like it's all sex field again. Some of my least favorite songs in this, though, are the electronic uh, collaborations. You have Closer to You featuring Major Lazer. And Please Don't Change featuring DJ Snake. I think both the production for Major Lazer and DJ Snake just really dull, really boring. And you know, Jung Cook, like, he is a, is a nice vocalist. He can fit on kind of anything. He can fit on those songs. But I just think those beats in particular are just quite boring and dull, to be honest. Uh, yeah, but kind of going through it some more. Uh, Standing Next to You, kind of funky. I like the horns on that. The bass sounds pretty cool. That one's not bad. Uh, yes or no, I think this would be my favorite song on Golden after Seven or apart from Seven. Love Jungkook's vocal performance on this, almost a bit of a hip-hop flow. Uh, and this is the song featuring the Ed Sheeran co-write. I think that one stands out. Just 
probably just more memorable than some of these other songs. You know, uh, uh, Hate You, this is the one co-written by Sean Mendez. I'm curious if that was maybe like Sean Mendez leftover that Jungkook was given. Again, he didn't write anything, so like these are all songs that came to him. Um, Hate You, you know, just kind of simple keys and, you know, sticky lyrics, though. Hating you is the only way it doesn't hurt. Like, I, to me, that's, I think, some of the most affecting messaging on the album is what you get in Hate You. And on the other end, of course, all the explicit stuff in the song like Seven. Um, somebody, I really like the pulsing drums from a production standpoint. Uh, Too Sad to Dance, you know, acoustic track, pretty solid. Again, Jungkook, vocally strong enough to hang out on less in your face production, such as that song. Uh, shot glass of tears similarly that's really just piano so on the other hand as i said before that's a lot of different production styles that's a lot of different vibes he can do really big he can do quiet and the thing though like i said is this album doesn't really have i think a cohesiveness to it and jungkook because he's not someone who is deeply involved in the creation of his music even if he you know says he created this album and approved everything with it it just doesn't feel like that piece is there but that, again, like the hit making ability is there. There's stickiness to it. So, and there's nothing wrong with having people help you make music, of course. That's how it goes. So, I'd be curious if anything pops out of this as a big hit. You know, again, Seven, already a monster hit. I mean, if he doesn't have another hit off the album, it's quite, quite all right. Um, I'm curious if Yes or No could be that song. To me, that's the one with the most potential. But yeah, Jungkook, Golden. You know, I think not as eye opening. As V's layover, you know, V becoming a, a jazz singer with a smoky voice, that that was something new and cool. You know, I think Joan Cook, he's, he's more in line with expectations on this album, and that's okay too. Uh, but let me know how'd you feel about Joan Cook's Golden? And now that we've got all the solo debuts from the BTS boys, what was your favorite? You know, I think to me, my overall favorite's probably RM, hit with Lonely, which is about a year old now. Um, but I didn't dislike any of them, which is pretty cool. I think we know, though, that BTS, a group better together than they are apart. So we'll be looking forward to that reunion, hopefully sometime at the end of 2025, early 2026 by the you know, timing of it. But yeah, let me know what was your favorite BTS solo album. How'd you feel about Jungkook's Golden? And for more music reviews, subscribe. And I'll see you next time. What's up? Welcome back to Nostalgia. Dave here with my 2024 Grammy nominations predictions. The Grammy nominations are coming out on November 10th, so I got to talk about what I think will get nominated before the 2024 Grammys, of course, do occur on February 4th next year. I'll be doing my full Grammy predictions uh, late January in the lead up to the Grammys, of course. But yeah, this is uh, the Grammys. They're back once again. And this time around, we're talking about the music release from October 1st last year to September 15th this year. Thus, there's always a few big albums or awards, awardsy albums that aren't on this Grammy cutoff. So for the next Grammy years, thus they aren't eligible right now, would be the new Bad Bunny album, Nade Sabe, uh, the new Choice of Vaughn album, Drake's For All the Dogs, Doja Cat's Scarlet, uh, Sampha's Lahai, probably the biggest albums that are not eligible this time around. But thus, as a result, we have Taylor Swift's Midnights from last year, SZA's SOS, Olivia Rodrigo's Guts. To me, those are the three big artists, the three big contenders. And we'll just kind of jump right in to Album of the Year. See the time codes below for some other categories we'll be getting to. Yeah, I think Album of the Year, it's Taylor, it's SZA, it's Olivia. Those three are all locks. And again, I'll be doing my predictions later, but those three are all locks to get nominated. After that, I think it's kind of interesting where there's not a lot of like will definitely get in there uh picks per se and it, i don't feel like i felt this way in a few years but you know in trying to fill out the rest of the, the the field here even though i don't think anyone else has a chance to win boy genius with the record i think they'll get in there i think lana del rey's in the mix i think foo fighters liked album grammy love they're probably in the mix although bruce springsteen from last year could be in the mix instead of them uh john batiste World Music Radio, John Batiste, Grammy, love in the past. Not that anyone's like a big John Batiste fan as far as I'm concerned, but probably in there. I'll be curious if Ed Sheeran gets in there. You know, less less popular album this time around than last time. We'll see. And I think the big ones from there would have to be 
countryside. Zach Bryan's self-titled album. Zach Bryan really blowing up this year after really rapid rise. Be curious if that one breaks through. And also, an even bigger record than that, Morgan Wallen's One Thing at a Time. I'll be curious if Wallen breaks through into the really big categories, given his previous controversies and also the fact that he's country artist. We'll see. But to me, that's kind of the mix. Like, Miley Cyrus, I suppose, could could be in here. I don't think Post Malone is going to be in here, even though he's been nominated for album of the year in the past. Just that album really came and went. Uh, Noah Kahan, I suppose. That would be kind of unexpected for him to break through all the way to the top. But we'll see. For record of the year and song of the year, which I'll just kind of talk about together because there's always so much overlap between the two. Similar cast of characters, you know, Miley Cyrus for Flowers. Uh, and, you know, we kind of all know like what, what main song they're riding behind. Miley for Flowers, Olivia for Vampire, Taylor Swift for Antihero, SZA for Kill Bill. I think they're all in the mix. Those are pretty obvious. don't have a good handle on who would win. I, I think Flowers and Antihero are probably the the ones that'll split those two wins. That's how I would think it would go. We'll see. Um, I think Doja Cat's Paint the Town Red could be in the mix here, given Doja's past Grammy attention. Um, then from there, you know, it's I think I think it's we're kind of guessing again. I don't really have a good feel. You know, I think Zach Bryan and Casey Musgraves, maybe their duet, I Remember Everything, could be here. We'll see. Um, maybe it's, you know, it depends how big a night Zach Bryan has with nominations. We'll see. Last night for Wallen, again, we'll see what happens with him. Uh, Luke Combs' cover of Fast Car, that can only be nominated uh, in Record of the Year because it's a remake, of course. Wouldn't be surprised to see that, but that's now three country artists I've mentioned. I don't think they're all going to get in there at the top here. Uh, be remiss not to acknowledge Billie Eilish for her Barbie soundtrack song, What Was I Made For? She's a two-time winner in these categories, so can't write her off, even if we're in an in-between year for Billie. Uh, Lift Me Up for Rihanna off the Black Panther 2 soundtrack from last year. Maybe it could be a sneaky nominee in one of these. We'll see. I think my personal pick. I would love if uh, Rush from Troy Sivan got nominated for Record of the Year, but it's not going to happen. That's just shout out, shout out Troy. Really love that song. Uh, Best New Artist. Best New Artist is very interesting this year. There's a lot of great choices. Um, I think Ice Spice, by far and away, is the biggest lock and probably the favorite to win. It's kind of obvious. But then from there, you know, Peso Pluma, you know, putting Corridos Tumbados on the international map out of Mexico. He's had a huge year. Um, and, you know, I think it'd be really smart to continue to acknowledge Latin music that's not made by the very famous artists yet. Peso Pluma, rapidly rising. He should be here. Uh, on the countryside, talked about country a lot already. How about Bailey Zimmerman, who is rapidly rising and is going to be a huge star? Be stupid not to pick him, in my opinion. Uh, Noah Kahan, uh, I think that one's really obvious. Talk about a rapid rise. Uh, if anyone can upset Ice Spice to win this, I think he's the pick. Uh, Pink Panthers as well. Um, she's great. I don't think she's popular enough to, to win this category, but she definitely should be nominated. That would be a big snub if she didn't get in. Then from there, I think it's it's a bit of guesswork. We'll see what happens. You know, other people like Ray and Jelly Roll and I suppose Coyle Ray is pretty famous at this point. We'll see. Uh, I'm definitely rooting for, and I don't think any of these are going to happen, honestly, but I'd be rooting for Best New Artist to include uh, someone from K-pop, uh, just because there's been a ton of brand new artists, brand new groups specifically uh, from K-pop, and I know 50-50 got mainstream with Cupid, but the best pick here, of course, would be New Jeans. If you've listened to me at all this year, you know how hard I've been riding for New Jeans. They make the perfect sense as a pick, but also Le Seraphim. As well, frankly, both of them should be nominated. But I would, I would really love to see New Jeans, even though I don't think it's going to happen. Also, Fred again, you know, he's not super new per se, but like he really blew up and is basically the face of electronic music and the EDM community right now. Be a really smart nomination and thought by the Recording Academy, but again, we're not going to hold our breath. And also, I think on the pop side, the alt pop side of things, Holly Humberstone, who recently released her debut album, which is not eligible to be nominated for this grammys but she's existed to this point she would be a pretty solid pick i think maybe she'll get nominated for this next year once the album is in the grammy cycle we'll see but shout out holly humberstone so yeah best new artist i'm thinking ice spice peso pluma noah khan probably pink panthers those are your top four and then belly zimmerman chicken in there as well the rest i think it's a guess we'll see pop vocal album you know again obvious names at the top Livy rodrigo taylor swift Miley Cyrus. Then from there, I'm kind of 
kind of not sure what, how it's going to end. You got the Sam Smith album, you got the Ed Sheeran album. Is that it? Is that what it's going to be? I saw some people throwing out the Kelly Clarkson album. I don't, I'm not sure I see that. Um, Carolyn Polachek would be an awesome pick for this. She's kind of more on the alt-pop side, not really a pop vocalist, pure pop vocalist, but I don't think she's big enough to really get nominated here, unfortunately. Uh, rap album? Very interesting year for the rap album category, honestly. Uh, Drake and 21 Savages, her loss was in fact submitted to the Grammys. Uh, Drake, of course, has not submitted music in the past recently and has talked ill of the Academy, but that album has been nominated and frankly is my pick. It's my favorite of all the albums I think are in the mix here. We also have Travis Scott's Utopia, Metro Boomin's Heroes and Villains. I think those three are going to get in. And then from there, I'm not really sure. You know, Nas released two albums this year. Would be foolish to completely write him off. Of course, he won a few years ago for King's Disease, but probably not going to happen. It's kind of spinning the wheel, I guess, as a nomination. We'll see. Get the Gun album, get the Ice Spice EP. I, I don't think the Ice Spice EP should be nominated. Best New Artist is enough, in my opinion. Uh, the Little Dirk album, I'm not sure. You know, All My Life with Cole, that big, that song's pretty big. I think that'll get nominated for uh, like Best Rap uh, Collab or Rap Song Collab or something like that. Maybe the album won't break through, I'm not sure. I love Jay Huss's album, Beautiful Brutal Yard, to get through, but Jay Huss isn't a big enough artist uh, to do it, you know. Yeah, I mean, the No Name album would be an awesome selection, honestly, but I just don't know if she's big enough to really get acknowledged like that. But she should be in there for sure. Um, speaking to like the Rap Heads things, people would ride for the Billy Woods album. Again, I don't really see it coming, although wouldn't totally write it off, given that a lot of old heads have been nominated for Best Rap Album uh, lately, which is pretty cool. So we'll see. I'm not really sure. So I want to shout out the Musica Urbana category, just because... You know, Bad Bunny, he's not eligible this time around, but you're still going to get the Carol G album, who's probably the favorite, you know, Manana, Sarah Bonito, and you're also going to get nom- uh, nominations probably for Rav Alejandro, Eladio Carrion. Um, Latin music is super big. Of course, we have a whole Latin, Latin Grammys as a result of this. It'd be cool if one of those albums was also in Album of the Year, and if we could continue to see this type of thing happen for music that's not made by absolutely accepted mainstream people like Bunny. We'll see. Um, also, uh, Burna Boy. I have to acknowledge Burna Boy's most recent album, which gets in just under the eligibility period. Uh, I Told Them. Came out right at the end there. I like the album quite a bit. I'd be very interested to see how far an Afrobeats artist can continue to rise beyond the genre categories. We've talked about this before with Burna Boy. And this was not his most critically acclaimed album, although there's a lot of stuff on here to like. You know, shout out Sitting on Top of the World, shout out City Boys as singles. Um, I wouldn't be surprised to see those songs get some love. We'll see. Um, but yeah, you know, I think the Grammys this year, it's really going to be a lot of familiar faces, I think. And we'll see how interesting they get with Best New Artists. We'll see if anybody less mainstreaming it's not her best rap album for example but you know it's kind of the same thing as we had last year i guess to a certain extent where last year was the big battle between adele and beyonce and harry styles right this year it's kind of similar not to the same overall degree but taylor SZA, and olivia is still uh, olivia olivia is a very big three still and yeah I think that's good enough, and I think we kind of predicted this a year ago when Midnight's came out, but Taylor's probably going to run it up, but, you know, there's always a surprise once in a while, so we'll see. I'll do my predictions once we have the nominations, and I'll react to the nominees once they come out at the end of the week, but let me know, who do you really want to see get Grammy nominated? Who are you riding for? Not necessarily to win, but at least to get recognized with a nomination. What do you want to see most? And for more Grammy talk or awards predictions... Grammys, Emmys, Oscars, subscribe, and I'll see you next time. All right, that's going to do it for the pod this week. Next week, it's going to be another packed pod, exciting once again. The conclusion of Loki Season 2 on Disney+, Plus. the Marvels from Marvel out in theaters, Double Dose of Marvel, For All Mankind, Season 4 premiere on Apple TV+, Plus. The Killer, starring Michael Fassbender, the new David Fincher film on Netflix, very exciting. Uh, some new music from Espa and Red Velvet and The Kid Leroy. 
And uh, also, more movies. The movies keep coming. Saltburn from Emerald Fennell, her second film. And I'm going to hit Digimon. There's a Digimon movie coming out. We're going to get into it. Let's go. Shout out Digimon. So yeah, make sure you subscribe. YouTube.com slash NostalgiaPod. Linktree.com slash NostalgiaPod. See the links below. Get the pod any way you can. Leave a comment. Leave a review. See the links below for the best of 2023 Spotify playlist for my favorite songs of the year updated weekly. And yeah, I'll see you next week. Yeah.